Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome, everybody, to Self-Storage Income. We have a great podcast today that is going to have a lot of relevance to getting started um, and continuing to grow and how you set this up, because this is about financing. Um, and we have a lot of questions on this, and our our guest today comes from Live Oak Bank. And I'm really excited about this because they they have a whole entire division that specializes in self-storage. And they're in markets all over the United States. Um, so we're going to understand what you need to be ready for, what you need to be prepared for um, when getting financing and uh, on these deals. But before we get into that, we definitely got to mention our awesome spon- sponsor, Janice. Um, Janice, we've mentioned several times about the Noki products, but it's also really important to understand their help on development. And I bring this up and I want to talk about this because this is what we're in the middle with Janice right now. So we're working on everything from conversions to new builds. And while we're doing this, we lean heavily on Janice to bring their expertise to the table to help us out um, in everything from how we're setting up the units, the architecture side, what sizes, demographics. They have such a wealth of knowledge in that department that they can really help us understand what is going to work in that market, what's not, and show us how that facility should be set up. Um, We use them on a previous uh, conversion that we did, and they really came in and act as one of those main players and architects and walked through and said, here's where I always need to be. Um, And that was immensely helpful for us. For sure. The other incredible thing I want to touch on too is uh, this aspect of not only building out a whole new facility or building out a um, you know an expansion project at your facilities. They're coming out with new products all the time to be able to integrate with current facilities and buildings and doors and things like that that you already have. So you don't have to go out and rebuild yes. or redo any of your uh, facilities. So And that's been a big one because, you know, yeah, it, it, there's huge. been a lot of... Um, people felt there was a lot of barriers in the way to integrate that new technology because the cost was so inhibitive of doing it to an existing facility. And they've really broken down those barriers. But anyways, their link is obviously in our show notes. It's also on our website, selfstorageincome.com. You can go there. It's on the front page. You just go down link, tell them that, you know, you heard about them from us and um, send them over there. Uh, That would be great with that. Um, we are going to move straight on to our interview with Terry Campbell from Live Oak Bank and talk about financing today. So, Terry, you there? I am here. Right on. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, AJ. I'm I'm, uh, honored to be here. Well, you know, I've known uh, about Live Oak Bank for a long time um, through a lot of my friends that are are very large in the industry. And... um, 
you guys have such a good reputation and they speak so highly of you. And one of the things that um, you know, really encouraged me to to have you guys on this podcast and talk is how you guys work within um, different markets. Because I'm from Idaho, right? So I am not in, a lot of my markets are second tier or, uh, you know, smaller markets. And when we have facilities in first tier markets, but for a lot of people, they're not building in big markets and they're really not sure how to approach banks with these assets. And you guys do so much in markets all across the United States. Um, and so you become a resource to people that maybe the big banks don't want to finance or won't even look at. And so thank you for coming on and talking to us about this because it is a really and obviously fundamental portion of the buying building and everything else with self-storage that a lot of people aren't sure how to handle. Right. You know, you can't do uh, too much without uh, having some money, can you? No, you can't. Especially <laughs> especially right factor. now and today. Yeah, <laughs> things are expensive. Um, but before we dive into all that, Terry, why don't you give them, uh, kind of give them a background, you know, tell us tell us what you do now, right? But tell, talk to us about how you got to this position and wh- how you got involved in this crazy world of, world of self-storage. Sure. I'll start. I'll go back to the beginning. Um, I was an architectural drafter by trade many years ago, and uh, I knew a fellow that worked at a company in Statesville, North Carolina. It's Betco. They're a building manufacturer. And uh, I helped him set up his um, drafting database. And I sort of learned a little bit about the company and what they do. And I'm like, self-storage, what is this? You know, this was in the early 90s. Uh, self-storage, it wasn't nearly anything like what it is today. So I got to be uh, friends with those guys, and I, I worked there uh, part-time helping them set up their database. Uh, long story short, I left the company I was at and and went and joined those guys, uh, and I was there. I started there January 3rd, 1995 uh, as an estimator, and I worked there at uh, Betco. I worked my way up. I learned the industry uh, and uh, a lot about the, the, in, the self-storage business. Uh, while I was there, I also became a partner in my first facility while I was there. But uh, when I started, I was a drafter and an estimator. When I left, I was the executive VP of operations and VP of sales and marketing when I left and uh, went to uh, Live Oak. And I uh, went to Live Oak to, uh, they wanted to start lending in the self-storage industry. Uh, you know, Live Oak Bank's a primarily an SBA lender. And the majority of what we do is SBA lending. We are the largest SBA lender in the country uh, by dollar volume. And uh, so they, they look at industries that have low default rates. And it just so happened that self-storage came up uh, on their radar uh, about six years ago. They were doing due diligence and doing some homework. And long story short, um, they sort of approached me. It kind of fell in my lap. And it was one of those uh, timing things. You know, I'd been there for 20 years uh, where I was and uh, things were good and things were fine. Our daughters had moved out uh, on their own, out of college and everything. And, and this just presented itself. And, you know, I told my wife, I said, you know, if I don't try this, I'll probably kick myself the rest of my life. Uh, so I tried it, uh, took a big jump, big leap of faith, uh, changing careers and packing up and moving on the same time yeah. uh, to join the bank and start this team, this vertical and uh, got an awesome team. We've done just fantastic. We've done, I'm pretty sure we're over uh, 700 million in self-storage loans we've done since uh, 2015 when and, we first started the thing. And tell me, you know, I find that, you know, facilities can, or lenders can have kind of niches that they uh, work in. Um, 
could you tell me a little bit about um, the focus area of your bank um, and what on you know do you guys like certain markets do you not because I find that a lot of banks that we work with this is very um they can be kind of iffy like right so we have some banks where they tell us they're interested and they really want and we engage with them and we go down this huge road and it's all great and then a month in they say oh we're interested just not in that market and we're like well right. then why in the world did did we talk here so right. uh you know could you kind of tell us a little bit about your your focus area demographics what you're looking for and where you lend Sure. Well, well, a little bit more about the bank is that we lend in 30 some different industries. We specialize in 30 some industries. So you got 30, some, you got teams that focus only on one industry. So like my team, we focus only on self storage and we do all 50 states and U.S. territories. And we depend on what we depend on is a, our experience and our expertise, as well as a third party feasibility study if it's a new project. Uh, we look at uh, acquisitions. We, if someone wants to do an acquisition, doesn't matter where it's at. I mean, you know, if it's in um, Yazoo City, Mississippi, or if it's in Boise, Idaho, or if it's in Charlotte, North Carolina, we're going to look at it with them. We're going to go through. We're going to look at all the things we need to be aware of. So if it's an acquisition, you know, tell us about this acquisition. Let's see the rent roll. Let's see the management reports. Let's uh, uh, look at that market. You know, if you're you're coming to me saying it's a value add deal. Why is it a value add deal? Tell me, you know, tell me what you're doing. Give us a real good business plan. So with that value add deal, you're saying, well, my occupancy is uh, only 50%. And then the next question to them is, okay, your occupancy is 50%. Are you talking physical or economic? Okay, if your physical economic um, occupancy is 50, how do you know you can get it up to where it, it belongs? So it's you know, 85 or 90%. Tell me about that in that market. Tell me about the competition. Tell me about what's going on there. And, and, you know, if it's good physical occupancy and it's just economic occupancy, you know, how are you going to raise that? Just uh, So we look at each one individual. We've got a lot of experience and a lot of industry expertise on how to look at these deals. And that's what makes us different. That's, that's why we get comfortable where a lot of banks don't. And, you know, some banks still think, okay, this is speculative because you're building something with 300 empty units and you have no leases going into it when you open that's speculative to, to some, but for those of us who know and understand this business and have been in a long time, we know how it works, and we're not nervous about that. If we have all the proper information and data going into it, we need. Okay, so now this is uh, this is really interesting to me. When you touched on a lot of different items, and, and the, it, very helpful. When you're looking at, let's, let's say that I'm a, a new investor, right? I've never been in real estate. Maybe I had a couple small ones, but I'm going to approach you for uh, uh, on a city where I'm buying an existing small facility, right? We'll use this as an example. When you come and I call up and I say, hey, Terry, I got this great facility, right? Um, or you or any other bank, right? When I'm coming to you as a lender saying, um, I want to buy this facility, you mentioned a couple things, right? You want to know numbers, you want to know what what all is are you wanting to receive, right? So when I send you the information, are you you're looking at the asset? How much are you looking at the operator? How much are you looking uh, to get down? What do you want to see from that operator to make sure that they look good, 
So they're not they're not putting materials together on on the deal or themselves, right? And presenting it to you. And then you're like, hey man, you don't have any of your stuff together. Like what should they right. come prepared for? Well, we want to see uh, a good business plan. We want to see a really strong business plan. In addition to the numbers and the things that, you know, we were just talking about when we talk about more is, uh, you know, their background obviously is important. We want to know what have you done that's transferable to this industry if you've not been in self-storage before? Have you done, do you have transferable skills? Uh, that you can move over to self-storage and maybe skills that you can introduce you to someone, uh, you know, who does uh, some training, uh, startup packages and things and shows you how to operate that facility. Uh, So, you know, maybe we can bring in, introduce you to these folks, help get you over that. But, you know, one of the big things that we really focus on and harp on is the business plan because, uh, you don't have the, the luxury, if you want to call it that, of standing before the credit committee or the credit officers when they make that decision. You're going to be depending on that, that credit or that lender that you're working with to present your case and your story to credit. So you want to help them as much as you can by pre- presenting them with an really awesome business plan. You want to brag on yourself. You want to have all the bases covered. You want to dot every I and cross every T so they know you've really done your homework and you've yeah. looked at this and you've you've figured out this is how I'm going to run it and this is how it's going to be successful. And if this doesn't happen, I'm going to do this. And and you just want to have, you know, your everything in place. And, you know, like I said, management reports and rent rolls and one of the things sometimes when we look at uh, uh, the, the rent rolls and uh, the management reports, we might see, uh, for example, there was a facility in, in Florida that we looked at. Uh, it was not a huge facility. You know, these folks were wanting to get started buying a facility and, and they found one and it had um, a fair amount of physical occupancy that was, uh, or, or I should say, um, um, didn't have the occupancy it needed to have. There was several units that were empty. Well, when you look at the report, we see we see that, okay, there's a lot of five by tens in here. There's not a market for five by tens there. Every, every unit's full. So we were able to, when we go, we go do a site visit. We, we visit every facility and we visit every person face to face. So I go in, I use my building background and say, okay, you can take this out, this out, this out and make these 10 by 10s now. They do it and then they fill it up and they're successful. So we look at, you know, for things like that are sometimes hidden. Yeah. Uh, that people don't think about. They say, oh my gosh, my physical occupancy is, is not, it just won't go up. Well, it won't go up because you've got a product there that nobody wants. Yes. They don't want five by 10s. They want 10 by 10s. Do you want to highlight the difference between that physical occupancy real fast for everybody? And economic occupancy. Can you kind of explain that more? Sure. Sure. Physical occupancy is how many square feet have you rented? So if there's 10,000 square feet and you've rented 9,000, you're at 90% occupancy. Economic occupancy is if uh, I rent that full 10,000 square feet out at full price, that's what my uh, income will be. So if you're not getting that full amount or you've got delinquencies or you're giving away promotions, your economic occupancy is going to be lower. Ideally, you want them to be very close. Yeah, this is a, you know, I think of of the side is once again, space occupied versus money being brought in Um, and economic occupancy, the spread between uh, physical occupancy and economic occupancy um, it has a lot to do with the operators and it has a lot to do with how they're maximizing. But 
Two, a lot of times it has to do with, as you mentioned before, Terry, the unit selection. And this is this is something that we've seen and we've bought very large facilities. You know, I think uh, immediately, uh, you know, Middleton Road where yeah, we bought it and of. they put, <laughs> it was like six buildings of five by fives. I mean, yeah. they did a spreadsheet, they looked at the spreadsheet and they said, we get the most money you know, on a square foot basis based upon these small five by fives versus these big ones. So we're going to build 400 of them. And they just put all these buildings only to realize that there was not a need for 400 five by fives and they could only fill up a hundred of them. And they didn't understand why they were at 60% occupancy. And so we bought it, we came in, moved walls, and we turned those five by fives into 10 by 10s and all sorts of different other uh, product types as we look at them as their products, people are wanting to use it. And within months, it was like five months, you know, they are economic occupancy because it was at 60% physical occupancy, but it was like 30% economic occupancy Mm -hmm. because of how it was working. And then physical occupancy shot up and obviously um, economic occupancy more than tripled. Uh, And that had primarily to do with they overbuilt. It's like they oversupplied their market with their own product. Um, And a lot of, and that's just a great point you bring up that you can put in explaining that to the bank saying, here's the problems we see, and there's solvable problems. Right. And then mapping out your solution and giving some data on why that solution will work. So when we took that problem, we said, listen, if you look at these other unit types, so if we look at 10 by 15s, 10 by 20s, and 10 by 10s in the marketplace, those are all 100% occupied. Right. But these five by fives are not. So it's not a problem. It's not an intrinsic asset problem where it's like the entire market's just oversupplied or it's this is a bad location or there's other problems like that. It's no, it's just a product problem and we can solve that problem. Yep. You know, they, they used to years ago, they used to call that a banker's mix. Because you made your unit mix look good to a banker because all those five by fives and five yep. by tens are going to bring in more revenue per square foot. It's going to make them happier. I think you're going to make more money when in essence is just the opposite. It's going to kill you. Yep, exactly. They forgot. They they looked at the spreadsheet, forgot about their customer. Um, yep. But now let me ask you this. So when you're looking at uh, different markets as a consumer, what are the things that you as a bank and other banks will see as, let's call them red flags that are, you know, our listeners and people should know you should be looking for this too. So the bank isn't bringing them up to you. Well, one of the things is, you know, if we're talking acquisitions, um, one of the things that we would look at is, um, is there like a major, one major employer or are you in an area where you have, um, a military base is 90% of your, um, your, your customer base. We've had that in, in the past where the majority, I think it was 77% maybe of that, that facility was military. It was right by the gate, but that military base was also on a list that faced potential closing. So, you know, things like that, uh, you know, we look for as far as a market, um, you know, and if you're you're wanting to buy one in a, or build one in a market, and there's you know, 15 other uh, competitors in the same market, and none of them are over 50% occupied, then there's a problem. So, 
those, those are some of the things that we look at market-wise. Oh, I love that. I, You know, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I like to look at, especially when I, I'm coming up with, you know, I call it the story. Like, what what is the story of this asset or this business, right? Why can, the, can I make this a, a successful business? And what are all the things that will stop this business from being successful? And I break that up into two categories. There's things that I can control and there's things that are out of my control. The things that are out of my control are way more important to me than the things that are within my control because I can't do anything about it. So I exactly. really need to understand those things. And what you just mentioned is one of the key things. We talk about a concentration of of uh, of employees with employments, right? And you see this in mining towns and logging towns, and you see this in military bases, and those things scare me. I need a diversified employer base so I don't have con- concentrated risk amongst one employer. Extremely important. Um, this can be one of the disadvantages of third-tier markets and the things that we look at smaller markets is what is the economic story? Why is this market going to continue? And what's going to kill it? Because I can run the best facility in town and I can have the best product in town. But if the town ends, there's nothing I can do about that. And the business and I will fail. Exactly. Very, very good point. That's I love the way you said that, worrying about the things that are out of your control, identifying them and knowing how you're going to deal with it. And, you know, absolutely. And banks, you know, your bank, this, this is all about risk. So what we look for and what we, when we present to banks, you know, and as you know, I'm coming to you to saying, first of all, you can trust us. And how can you trust us is not because I'm necessarily a great guy or a trustworthy guy either, but it's because of my track record, what I can bring to the table, what I can do. And I, I, I'm trying to present myself. I'm showing myself off, right? It's my resume, just like you said earlier on. But then also, because I'm trying to reduce the bank's risk with me right? Because I have an inherent risk as the person doing it. Then you try to reduce risk for the bank, right? I don't look at this as the bank is either an enemy or not. This is a business venture you're doing together. You are partners. So how are how are you going to control and reduce this risk? And how are you helping the bank do that, right? We always put ourselves in the position to how do we help the bank? How do we make sure? Because if they win, we win. And so then we look at those other circumstances and we talk that through with the bank. And it's not about hiding risk. In fact, that's one of the forefront things we put out. Here are the risks. Because I view it if I'm the one that is walking through that uh, uh, the bank or the venture partner or whoever that capital is saying, I've identified the risks, I'm walking you through them and I'm showing you how important they are, what that means that it shows that I have a good round understanding that I don't live in some fantasy land where I'm like, there's no risks. This is going to be totally successful. You're going to love it. Because then what happens is if those partners go and find out all these risks and they say, you either did two things. First, you either didn't know about them, which is really concerning because you don't understand the risks in your market. Or second, you didn't tell us, which is also really concerning. Um, So for me, when I'm presenting to banks, lots of people say, oh, I don't want to talk about the bad things because I don't want them to get skittish. For me, I say, throw it out on the table and have the conversation with your partner up front. Yeah, the transparency is huge. Huge to me. Um, Absolutely. and, And two, even when I, you know, when I understand my weaknesses, right? Because I know that 
The bank's going to understand my weaknesses, right? So if I go to you and I say, Terry, this is the best project in the world. It's going to be a huge success. We're developing 200,000 square feet in this market that has 2,000 people. It's going to be amazing. And this is just awesome. Look at these numbers. I've planted this out and everything. And you say, AJ, you've never developed anything in your life, right? And I say, it doesn't matter because look at me, I'm awesome, right? That's a problem. Now, if I come to you instead and said, hey, you're right, but I've done these things, right? I've added on partners or I've added on consultants or I've done all these things to insulate you, bank, from my inherent risks. It's not a problem. It's, it can be fixed, right? Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm totally off there, but I'm like, risk is always a part of the game. So you just need to talk about it. Absolutely. I mean, again, it's for a bank, it is everything that revolves around risk mitigation. Because, you know, we want to make sure you've done your part to mitigate your risk. We're going to do our part to mitigate our risk because we are partners in this. I mean, we do look at it that way. We look at it as a partnership and we want you to have done everything. We want you to expose those. Uh, when we know that you have thrown everything on the table, yeah, we're looking for that because nothing, nothing's perfect. There's no perfect deal. No, doesn't exist. And when we know that you have done your homework and you said, look, I've got, hey, here's a lot of potential upside here. Here are the potential downsides and this is how we're going to mitigate those and this is how we're going to deal with them. That way we trust you more because we know you've done your homework. We know that you're serious. Uh, we know that uh, you're going to have skin in the game. But, you know, uh, again, for us, it's about risk mitigation because we're actually going to have more skin in the game than you are uh, as a borrower. Uh, you're going to put, you know, depending on, you know, if it's an SBA loan, you're going to put down maybe 10 percent. And that means we're bringing 90 percent to the table. So we've got a whole lot more invested at this point uh, than you have as far as an amount. And, and you know, percentage wise, it may be everything you have in the world. So it means a lot to you. But and we want to mitigate the risk, not only for ourselves, but we don't want to. Um, we're not going to do a loan that's going to be uh, bad uh, for the borrower. If, if it's not good for everybody, we're not going to do it because, uh, you know, if, if, if a borrower gets a loan and uh, it goes belly up and they lose everything, they're not going to sleep good for a few years. They're going to go bankrupt. They're going to do all this stuff. You know, we're going to go write it off and go home, go to bed and sleep. But we don't want that happening. And that's a, that's a big part. And people should look at it that way. They should look at the bank, maybe turning them down, being a favor, not, yes. not being upset with them. No, I, I couldn't agree more. The bank turning it down should be, that's helping you. Because first of all, it's identifying areas that you may not have noticed or not addressed. And you need to look at those and ask them, what was it? Talk, talk me through this. What am I not seeing here? And I think that's important too, that you approach this without pride uh, from a standpoint of saying, you're wrong. I always say, it's totally possible I'm missing something. So talk to me, right? Call you up and say, hey, Terry, did I miss something on here? What are you thinking? Show me, walk me through this because it's a partnership. And yep. if you caught something that I didn't, that's only good because I don't want to waste my money and <laughs> exactly. I don't want to risk my money. So yep. thank you, right? Yes. Thank you. And um, it should be approached that way. And two, the reason it needs to be approached this way, you mentioned this, and this is really important to me. In fact, this is one of the reasons that I wanted Terry to come on, uh, on the podcast because for me, these are partnerships. So to give you an example, we did a deal in a market that we hadn't been. The bank that funded the deal was a local, um, I think, credit union 
or a lawyer. They were multi-state credit union or whatnot, but they really wanted this deal. Um, I went out. I met with the president. We met with, I met with their head underwriter um, and I brought them. I showed them our deals, right? And this, I didn't need to do this. I didn't need to do this, but I wanted to because I said, if we're going to enter this market and if you're putting a loan on this, uh, you're my partner. So we need to be, let's all go out to lunch. I want to sit down. I want to talk about maybe future projects. And we've used banks all over the place, right? In multiple states and national, everything. And so every one of them though, we develop a relationship because it's not a one thing. It's not a quick hit. It's not a one-time deal. When I go and I develop that relationship with Terry or whoever it is, right? Then I'm saying, Terry, this isn't, this isn't the only thing I'm doing. If I do another deal with you, that decreases the work in the next deal I have to do. You understand my strengths and weaknesses. You understand who I am, what I'm looking for. And so you're actually going to be more willing to work with me on a second deal. That's a huge advantage to an individual, right? And it is to the bank too. And the reason why I thought of you guys when I did it, because your relationships that you've built in this industry are very strong, meaning that you do not one deal, one-offs, but the people that you're doing deal, they do lots of deals with you. Um, and this, to me, that is the name in fine. That is the name of the game in financing. It is relationships, right? Economics is a people game. No matter what, what you think or what you say, it's a people game and you need to build good relationships with those banks and correct me if I'm wrong, but the people that you have good relationships with, you are a lot more willing to give money to than obviously somebody you don't know. Absolutely. I mean, you need to look at it almost like you're dating and getting married because once you, you know you want to be in a, this relationship uh, uh, for the long haul. And once you do get into it and you've got a loan, it's not like uh, you can't just get a divorce. Uh, so you you want to you want to be working with somebody that you can work with, that you can have a long term relationship with and you can form that trust with. And you're right. We have a lot of that. We um, we really focus <clears throat> our mantra at the bank. Uh, our CEO, this is his tagline, and we've got it on everything. Treat every customer like the only customer. Uh, and that's really what we try to do. And uh, we want everybody to feel that way. And um, I, I can't think of anybody myself offhand that doesn't. It, it just means a lot because, like you said, it's a potential 25-year relationship. Not many are going to go that long, but it is a potential 25-year yeah. relationship. And we want to look at it that way. We don't want to look at it as a number. We want to be there to help and and, and not just, uh, you know, having that relationship. But we want to, if, if we see that, um, you know, something's not going right or maybe you're not leasing up as fast as you, you should have or something, we jump in and help. Uh, we bring resources to the table. We bring them some consultants. We do, th and we've done that several times. And the ones we've done it for, uh, they they couldn't thank us enough, and they're doing fantastic now. I was just about to mention that because this is very important. And and we look at this: the world isn't going to go however you planned it on your spreadsheet. And there are going to be really tough times ahead. There always is, right? We always have recessions. We always have contractions. We have ups. We have downs. And to ignore those things is lunacy because you're just making a choice to stick your head in the sand. When we look at financial partners, one of the major things that we ask and we look at, we say, okay, what happens when it hits the fan? What happens when things go south? And it's I, as much as I want to say this is amazing, everything else like that, which it, it, it is, and it's going to be. But when the United States goes into a massive recession, how do you guys handle this? How do we work together? This is for as an operator, as an owner, 
for my financial partners. This is one of the top concerns that I have. Um, and that's something that I'm very interested in what you see going on in the market from a standpoint, how different people approach those things and how specifically your bank and what you see in the market, when things go south, what do you do with your uh, uh, partners, right? With uh, the people that you're partnered up with on these deals. How does the bank handle it? How does underwriting handle value changes? Um, and what does that look like? We try to be conservative when, when you know, when we're underwriting. We we try to be very conservative. We we like to uh, uh, use the term shock it, shock the deal. What if you know something really bad happens? Uh, we put a shock factor on it and look at it and say, you know, okay, what if this happens? Let's let's say there's a three percent increase in in interest rates, uh, and you've got a variable. What's going to happen then? What's going to happen if you know your occupancy drops uh, down by twenty percent? So we look at that with our bar up front and we try to accommodate that on the front and that that thought process on the front end and we try to make sure that they've got enough uh, cash uh, on hand in case something does go sideways for a while like that and that's and that's one of the reasons that you know going back to risk mitigation uh, that's one of the reasons we really like the SBA program because um, that it allows for less of a down payment. Now, some there's two sides to that coin, and people argue uh, that that point. But okay, you, if you have less cash that you've put down, you're able to save more. Uh, some people are going to say, "Well, you know, I don't want to be leveraged that high in case something does go south." So you can look at it both ways. So if you put all your money on the table and you're not as leveraged, but things do go south, and now you don't have any cash. Uh, you're kind of in a spot. Now, if we underwrite conservatively, you have less equity in the deal. You've saved your cash uh, in case you need it. You might be in a better position. So we just try to be very conservative in the underwriting when we look at these things and try not to do deals that are marginal, that uh, you know, in a recession or a bad bump in the economy is going to throw it for a loop and put them in a bad spot. But if they do find themselves in a bad spot, we try our best to try to find ways to work with them. Uh, you know, we've had deals that new construction deals that opened uh, in northern states. There's one I can think of right now that opened in Chicago in November. Not a good time to be opening uh, in Chicago. So, I mean, they don't really start their rental season to probably May uh, or something like that. So, the, and, and it wasn't their fault. They were delayed for construction reasons because of the city. I mean, you can imagine Chicago. So, there was all sorts of things popping up. Exactly. So, you've got uh, all those things happening. So, we've worked with them in different ways, you know, whether it's a deferral or whether it's interest-only extensions or whatever in ways that we can do. We, we try our best to make it happen. I can say this, that we've not had one single, even though we've had some that had situations like that that have put them in a bind, we've not had one single loan that has gone bad or defaulted at this point. That's amazing. Just because of the way that we try to approach these things, the way we underwrite them, the way we use SBA for risk mitigation, uh, just uh, uh, just the whole package of how we try to look at it. You, you know, okay, let's talk more about this on the environment of financing as a whole, Terry. When you look at self-storage, what are the financing options for individuals? You mentioned SBA, Right? Mm -hmm. Could you tell us about more financing options, pros, cons, um, what you see working, um, and may maybe too? I know this is a large question, right? So this is a big discussion point, but also two different asset types. So if I'm doing a conversion versus a build, right? Mm -hmm. Different 
financing opportunities and situations go better with different things. Could you kind of explain this landscape to all our listeners that are saying, I'm either just getting in or maybe I'm in it, but I don't know what I don't know. And I don't know what options are out there. Well, the different options. Okay. You know, you mentioned like conversions and new construction acquisitions. Um, the, the, the type of uh, financing options I'm going to mention can apply to any of them, actually. Um, you know, we really like acquisitions that have value add. We really like, uh, the, now this is my personal scale. Okay. I like acquisitions. Then I like conversions next because you don't have the uh, construction risk that you do with a ground up. You don't have a lot of the politics and bureaucracy that you've got to deal with. You don't have weather you've got to deal with. It's a, it's a lot easier. And then ground up construction would be the next one. But the different options, uh, obviously, as I, you've heard me mention several times since, you know, we, we do a lot of SBA. You've got the SBA 7A program. Uh, you've got the SBA 504 program. And you've got uh, conventional lending. Uh, we were able to actually do USDA lending up until just in the last couple of weeks, USDA disqualified the self-storage. So now it's basically conventional and the two SBAs. Now, uh, if it's an acquisition, <clears throat> and uh, you don't really need uh, much or any in the way of CapEx. Uh, I would look at uh, either an SBA 504 loan or a conventional. And, and the, what it comes down to is how much cash do you have uh, to put down? Uh, how much are you comfortable with? Uh, you know, if, you do, if you're going to do a conventional loan, you're going to usually need, um, especially these days, at least 25% equity on an acquisition, most likely. Uh, it was getting a little lower than that uh, a while back. Uh, you were able to put in, you know, maybe 15 or 20. But after COVID happened, now it's probably 25 is usually what we're seeing, sometimes even 30 on an acquisition. So you could do a conventional loan. Some of the pros to the conventional loan is that um, you don't, it, it can close faster. It's just not as much paper work, you can probably get a little bit better interest rate. Uh, but some of the cons is you're going to have financial covenants on this loan. You're going to have loan to value covenants. You may have uh, covenants that you've got to uh, lease up to a certain point by a certain amount or have a certain uh, income percentage or certain um, uh, profit levels that you've got to live to. And, and one of the bad things, and again, about the financial covenants is I've talked to a lot of folks who during the, the great financial crisis back in 08, 010, and you know, through there, 2010, is that a lot of folks uh, found themselves in a position where banks were being bought by other banks, banks were reevaluating their portfolios. And uh, when they were doing that, they found that because, you know, virtually everybody's property value back then took a pretty bad hit. And as property values dropped back then, some people found themselves in violation of their financial covenant on the LTV. And uh, again, I've talked to several people who uh, found that they had to come up with a lot of cash to keep from being foreclosed on, even though they were making their payments, their business was doing fine. Talked to one guy who had to raise a million bucks to keep his facility, even though he was making payments. So that's some of the pros and cons of conventional uh, SBA 7A loan. We really like to um, encourage the use of it on new construction. Uh, and one of the reasons is, is you can get in for less cash out of your pocket, as little as 10%. And we can include 
uh, the uh, interest only payments, interest reserves, and working capital for you while you lease up. So we can include interest only through construction, and then we can provide up to potentially two more years of interest only and working capital built into your loan while you're leasing up so you don't have to come out of your pocket with it. Uh, and again, no financial covenants, uh, very short prepayment penalty, three years on that. And then, um, you know, for acquisitions right now, acquisitions probably would recommend, uh, depending on the size of the deal, a 504, because the, the 504 loan uh, is uh, the way that it's made, uh, the structure of it is that 50% of that loan basically is a conventional loan from the bank, and then uh, 30 to 35% is uh, an SBA loan where the SBA actually comes in and provides that money. Now, with the 7A, we're providing all the money. We're just getting a guarantee from the SBA for 75% of any loss. With the 504, uh, they're actually bringing in 30 to 35%. And right now, the SBA's interest rate for that loan, for that portion of that loan, is between somewhere right now between two and a half and two point seven percent fixed for twenty five years. So that's why we recommend it, uh, but uh, for acquisitions sometimes because you know it's it's a pretty good deal. And you know if you go down the road uh, a few years and you want to finance out the bank's portion, you can do that and still keep the five hundred four portion, the debenture. So that's. Um, you know, kind of an but one of the one of the things about the 504 is it, it is a 10 year prepayment penalty on the SBA's portion, um, where the bank is going to set their own. The bank's going to set their own interest rate. But those are the the kind of uh, programs that that you know are kind of out there right now. Uh, obviously, there's CMBS and things like that, but that's a whole different animal, and it's something we don't get into or we're not involved in. But for you know, and for that's your okay. Audience, we had a whole uh, another podcast on uh, CMBS loans, and so that. That was a, a rich, oh, that was a while ago. That so was a few it, episodes ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if our listeners want to look back, they can they can cover on that because that is that's a whole other animal, really. Right. Um, right. Now let, let me ask you about this. A lot of people may be saying, "I don't have a, I, I have some money, right? But it's not like my balance sheet is massive. I don't. It's not like I have lots of assets. Thing. What if you come? If you're looking to finance a storage facility, right? Let's say you got. A storage facility for $2 million, you can come up um, with your money, friends and family um, to put the 20% down, but um, you don't have a robust uh, uh, balance sheet. What are your, does that change your options when, depending on how well collateralized you are, how many assets you have, does that change different options in financing and what may be good or not? That scenario, uh, I would only look at with more than likely with a, uh, with a, 7A loan, uh, probably. Well, maybe a 504, but it's only going to be an SBA loan there. But we're going to look at each one individual. We're going to look at the whole entire picture. We're going to see, uh, you know, what do you have now you're able to put into it? What kind of recurring income do you have? Uh, what are you going to, what do you have in savings? What would you have if, you know, if something went bump in the night and you needed to pony up some cash? What do you have? So we want to see a certain amount. There's, there's never a set amount. We look at every deal and each one, we look at each borrower, each each deal, and we see what do we feel comfortable in for this borrower not to be able to get in trouble. Let, so let it's, me ask it's you hard this. to quantify that. Yeah, let me ask you this. I, this is always an interesting thing to me that um, what the, there's pros and cons to all these things, right? One of the mm -hmm. cons with, with SBA, particularly in a climate like this, is the amount of time it takes to get it done and the amount of time that we don't know at the end if it's going to happen. How do you mitigate this? So let's say that, hey, I got this. Terry, 
I call you up. I got this great deal, right? Or once again, any other bank, but we're talking to you. Terry, I got this great deal. And you're like, great, we should lock this. Uh, I want to lock this up and get a loan on it. What time frame should I be expecting? And what time frame do I need to go back to tell the um, owner that it, I need to have this due diligence period locked up um, and worrying about my money going hard? What does that look like? That's a, that's a very good question. And that's one of the biggest concerns a lot of folks have is that they hear that it takes forever to do an SBA loan. Uh, they know folks who have had nightmares with them. And it basically boils down to dealing with a bank that understands the program. Uh, it's like, I, I like to use the example, it's like having your podiatrist do a heart valve replacement for you. Just because he's a doctor doesn't mean he should be doing that. Just because every bank can do an SBA loan doesn't mean they should be because they don't do enough of them to be familiar with them. Now, uh, being the largest SBA lender in the country and we do tons of them, we know how to do it and we can do it fast. Usually I say that we will do an SBA loan as fast as you let us, which means as fast as you get us documents we ask for, as fast as we get third-party reports. But to be a little more specific for you, uh, we tell folks that we can, uh, you know, if we get everything we need from you from from the day that we get everything to proceed, um, and we make you uh, a, a commitment letter that we should we could close in sixty days if you get us everything on time, uh, you know, because the borrower becomes part of the, the lending team at that point. Yep. Now you're you are the bottleneck usually, because we're going to send you a list of things. Here's what we need. Uh, and we actually try to send that out ahead of time before we even give you a commitment letter. So you know what's what to expect and what to be working on. You know, like talking to your insurance company. You need to be looking at those guys, talking to title, talking to you know, whoever, so you can get the ball rolling sooner. And you're not at the end of the process going, oh my gosh, I didn't get my life insurance. Or I didn't get my insurance on my property or whatever. Uh, so, you know, we can do it as little 60. We've done it as little 30 before. Um, when, you, um, when you say 60, let, let me say that. That's to close it out. Um, but when, how long does it usually take you to know whether you're going to do the deal or not? Oh, oh, to, to uh, be able to give you an answer. Typically, our team can give you an answer within um, uh, two weeks at the most. Okay. Sometimes you That's sometimes we can. Yeah, sometimes we can do it in days That's fine. because you're going to yeah. work with a lender. And as soon as they've got everything they need from you and they pull it together, they look at it, they put it together, they run it through underwriting, send it to credit. Uh, usually two weeks uh, is what we, we quote, but we can do faster sometimes. One thing that I would uh, uh, tell, excuse me, one thing that I would tell people um, is when you're looking at the loan and you're working with a seller, um, particularly if it's on a smaller facility and it's not, you know, institutional large uh, facilities and you're, you're going to do a loan is um, it can be very hard to extract information from some of those owners. Um, right. What I would say is, hey, we're putting this together, but I don't want my uh, the time between my due diligence g getting started and the money going hard. It, it, I want that to be after we get the information that we need. So you can't say, okay, I have 30 days till my money goes hard, but then you don't get me information, seller, until 25 days into it. So what I like to say is I, I'm okay saying we have 30 days, but it's 30 days after you get me the documents I need, which is, I think, a reasonable thing to ask because if I don't have it, I can't start. Um, so make sure you incorporate that when dealing with the sellers, um, that there's certain amount of things that I need and I can't be held responsible if you don't give those to me. That's reasonable. 
And if you do that, that puts in a protection for you saying, I'm, I, I, I can only go as fast as that seller will give me the reports or the data or whatever that is. Um, and you don't want that time to lapse, your money go hard, then they give you the information and then it's a clear no. Um, so it, uh, doing that trick, because at the speed you're talking about it, if you do that, you could you could have the information, have a yes or no, and then you're going to be okay whether your money goes hard or not. Right. Yep. That's uh, definitely, we see that sometimes as a problem. You know, like you said, folks just don't want to let go of that. They don't want to hand over their tax returns. And and sometimes we try, you know, we'll get involved if we need to, to try to help by offering it. Look, here's a, uh, here's a note from the bank saying we've reviewed uh, the qualifications, uh, uh, you know, of this borrower and they are suited, suitable to be a borrower. Uh, and the, the rest depends on the deal and the information they're going to get from you which basically can help light a fire under them. Like, oh, okay, well, I guess I better give them this info so they can find out whether or not they can get the loan. Yeah, I mean, our latest deal we just did, the sellers, uh, husband and wife, this is a large deal. This is 100,000 square feet in a first-tier market. Um, the husband died in the middle of our um, due diligence. The wife didn't have um, a terrible involvement in it, uh, not a lot of involvement. And all of a sudden, we couldn't get reports. Um, mm-hmm. and the reports that we got were trash. They didn't even make sense. And we had to literally back into it and create our own financial spreadsheets for that thing. This was totally out of the blue. Um, it was a huge facility. We're talking, you know, six plus million dollars and we couldn't even get really decent P and L's like in, in looking at past documents. So this isn't even with small facilities that this stuff can happen. So we're scrambling with the lenders trying to get this stuff done. And uh, the uh, wife is looking around saying, well, I don't know. What do you want? I don't, you know what I mean? She's like, and she wants it sold. She wants it gone. Right. Right. And so we're working with the lender. We're trying to help her. It was a tragic situation. We're doing everything we can do with her to make this an easy process. But our ability to extract information and data that the bank needed, historical information and financials and taxes and what was really in there, almost evaporated. Um, And it became a full-time job for our CFO. And he had to literally back end and recreate financial um, uh, data for her. Uh, so that's something that, you know, you just need to remember, um, that it's, it's a two part system. You need to be able to get that money and you need to be, or money, excuse me. You need to be able to get that information because obviously you shouldn't expect a bank to give you money if they have no historical financial performance or verification that the information coming in is real. Uh, so it's, it's, you need to just be prepared to collect that information, have those conversations with the seller up front before we go out of contract. Do you have this information? Are you going to provide this information? How soon can you provide it? So that way the bank is comfortable and you can get that stuff uh, quick because you're right. It is a partnership. You're we do the underwriting with the bank. We literally do um, in our firm. So uh, that's an important, important piece. Well, and vetting that information that you're getting from them is huge, too. Very, a, very uh, big. animal in its own. It is. Yeah. We've we've had those things. Uh, we do we have people on the ground that are going and checking locks that are actually looking at these things and making sure that what's being reported is, is true. Um, this is homework, right? That that you need to do because once again, you're trying to reduce risk for you and the bank um, and provide comfort for your lender that uh, you're you're doing these things. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point. Now, 
we've talked about a lot of these financial options and people that are are um, getting into the industry or as well as expanding. What do you think if you're trying to expand and grow your portfolio um, on refinancing? Talk to me a little bit about this. Let's say your value add goes well. Okay. Um, we've built it up. We have a big margin. We've increased revenue a lot. Now we have a lot of equity sitting on the table that we would like to put into another deal. Um, I know that there's limitations and prepayment penalties on some of these loans. What is your suggestion to someone that says, I have a very large value add opportunity? This is severely under market. And we feel that we could easily increase the value of this facility by, by 50%. Does that change into, and you know that they're trying to do more and grow and expand. Um, does that change the way you should look at financing? Well, you know, if you're talking about a facility, it's got a ton of, uh, of uh, equity uh, that's built into it. Now, are you, are you talking about expanding that particular f- facility or, or buying no, or building uh, another one? Uh, buying and building another one. Okay. Well, uh, obviously, you know, these days, uh, cash out has been a little more of a challenge. It's, it's something we actually haven't done uh, ourselves is doing the, the, the cash out. What we have done in some cases, if someone wants to expand their, their operation is use the equity in that uh, as in um, make that facility also a corporate guarantor on the new one or the expansion. And you may be able to actually, we actually did one, I think recently where we had that very scenario and they didn't have to come out with any cash uh, just by making that other facility a corporate guarantor. I like that. Yeah, that's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. I like that. Um, and that's a conversation that you think, obviously, the um, borrowers should have with their lenders up front is their, Absolutely. their plans. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, some banks may be willing to do it and some may not. Good to know. And now um, – I know this because you 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 tell people um, what's a fit for you guys and what's not up front. You don't you don't spend people's wills. Um, when uh, when you guys are looking at individuals that may not be good fits, what would you consider not a good fit? Is there certain things that you say? Listen, we we really don't like either these markets or these types of storage, or we don't like this investment style. Uh, well, it's just uh, what we think is not a good fit usually uh, quite often comes down to the person um, that, you know, either it's, you know, they've got bad credit or they've had bankruptcies or, uh, you know, if sometimes it may come down to it may be the facility. It may be one where um, they want to buy a facility as a value add, but they haven't checked and done the, uh, any check on planning and see that there's a new facility um, half a mile away that's going to be built that's going to cut off all their customers uh, coming to them. Uh, so, you know, we look at it holistically. We look at the bar where we look at their their numbers, their um, amount of cash they have, how much post-transactional liquidity they have, uh, again, their credit score. Um, their uh, transferable skills, if they if they have any or if they don't. So we just you try to look at the the whole thing. Um, I like to, that. to get a good picture on that. No, that's that's awesome. And and that's you know we encourage people to uh, you know we love it when somebody comes to us with a fully baked deal and they've done all their homework they got a great business plan they're ready to go but we also like it when they come to us early that way we can talk to them and number they don't waste their time and when they do come back to us they've got things that they need to have done. 
Uh, we can, you know, tell them, you know, these are the things you need to be working on. This is what you need to look at. You don't have the strength yourself. You need to get a partner. So go start looking for a partner. And uh, so the earlier, the better uh, as well. You know, I, I would just as soon talk to somebody early up front, help get them pointed in the right direction. And each conversation is unique, like a snowflake. Uh, so, you know, talking to your banker, whether it's us or, you know, whoever, uh, talk to them early and up front uh, just as soon as you can when you're thinking about this. Uh, so you can you can start making plans and going in the right direction and not have to back up or redo something. That's awesome. Well, Terry, first of all, thank you for coming. I'd say that I'd see it at the next ISS or SSA, but... Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, that's obviously not happening this year. So <laughs> well, you will someday. <laughs> someday yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll see if the we'll other see. ones, or I'll just make it out uh, uh, your way, and, and we'll, we'll drop by to have some lunch. But thank you so much for um, coming on our our podcast, being you know sharing uh, openly about different strategies and everything. Why don't you tell people where they can go to find you, um, how they can touch base and get in contact with you, and we will put this in our show notes so that they can look in there too. Sure. Um, one of the easiest ways, obviously, is email. Um, Terry, T-E-R-R-Y dot Campbell, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L, at liveoak.bank uh, is my email address. And uh, my direct number to my desk is 910-202-6933. And if you want to just check out our website, it's uh, liveoakbank.com. And you can see we've got tons of resources on there and you can go to uh, there's a different page for each one of our lending teams so you could go to the self storage uh, page and see all sorts of videos we've done uh, there's some uh, blogs I've put on there like on the acquisition process there's I've broken it up into several things there so lots of learning opportunities and education on there uh, as well and you can just look around and see who we are and what we do fantastic awesome. That's wonderful. I, I, I appreciate you having me on, AJ. And I'm going to tell you, I, I told you I'd bought your book. Uh, uh, you got one heck of a story, my man. I, I tell you, it's very impressive. It really, really is. And I, I'd encourage anybody who hasn't read it to read. I, I'm not finished it, but I've gotten through a good part of it. I think I told you when I bought it, I was in the middle of a move. And yeah. we're still unpacking now. So I haven't. I still haven't finished it, but I try to read a little bit every other day. But uh, great book, man. Great, great story. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you for everything you guys are doing in the industry. And, uh, um, you know, you just have such a good, good reputation that we were uh, so excited to have you on. We appreciate it. And um, I'm sure we'll have you on again. Okay, Terry? That's super. And again, I really appreciate being here. Awesome. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Take Terry. Take care, guys. 